Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 95. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello and welcome to show number 95. Main fiction today is Ken Scholes. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have the editorial today and I'll just give you a little rundown of what's happening, what's what my life's all kind of, all hell for leather going on in my life. We have a little poem by G.U. Clark. We have a fact article by Cory Doctorow and main fiction comes from Ken Scholes. And we have some new titles as well tacked on the end of the show. And we also have a fantastic bit of artwork to accompany this short story today. Artwork is by Ed Bellissimo. And Ed, if you remember, did the Vinegar Peace one. The story wrote by Michael Bishop for his son Jamie. And that bit of artwork got so much praise. You know what I mean? It was featured on Boing Boing. It was featured on numerous websites, you know. And Ed, very kindly again, after, you know, I dropped him an email, has come up with this one for the Ken Scholes story. And like I say, it's just... You know what I mean? You've got to look at it and you've got to kind of take it into the context of the story and everything. But it's it's a marvellous one. So do look out for that on the thread. It'll be on the RSS feed. And there'll be a bigger one on the front of the website. So I hope you, as usual, stick around and enjoy the show. So jumping straight into the editorial, the forums are back. They have been resurrected. I think it's been off for about three weeks now. They've been kind of knackered, if one for a better word, for nearly about four or five months, just static and nothing being able to do with them. Now, actually, now Starship Sofa is fully fledged on our own, support ourselves, doing everything ourselves. We're no more relying on anybody else. It's all our own work. But I just want to say a big, big thank you to Josh Liu's. 
And Josh is probably squirming there now <laughs> that we have just hammered and hacked at his surname. Josh, sorry about that. I haven't got a clue how to pronounce it. But like I mentioned a few months ago on the show, you know what I mean? This, the actual forums were going to get in a crash and burn, to be quite honest. They were going to get switched off. And I hadn't really a clue how to kind of transfer. And I have actually know it's been pretty hard, nasty little job there. But Josh stepped up and said, I'll, I'll have a go. And like I say, saved, you know what I mean? I think saved a lot. And, well, now it actually looks part of the Starship Sova's website. You know, the other way, it was just a... Oh, it's just a right mess and kind of just a made-up, horrible-looking thing. So we're now kind of fully-fledged. Like I say, Josh has just pulled out all the stops. He's he's getting everybody over there. So you can now join up. You've got to actually sign up. Or not sign up again. You've got to enter your password again when you, when you come over to the front of the site. And it'll tell you to kind of put a new password in. So you've got to really... You get this convoluted password. Get that, and then you, you make your own password up. That was the only kind of downfall with it. You know, you've lost, apparently you lost as well, anyone who's a regular on there will notice you have new avatars. You've got these little monster ones that people seem to quite like. But the avatars from the last forums, they, they kind of bit the bullet, which I think was a small price to pay for just being able to have the forums back up and running. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, that's, I guess that's why Starship Sova is the way it is. Do you know what I mean? It's just everybody. And it was somewhere where to go, where we can all kind of chat and hang out, you know, and, and even talk about totally different things from the actual show. But it was since we actually moved servers and that, which I, I can't remember how long ago that was, it didn't work as a proper forums, you know, new people couldn't join up. And there was like so many new people wanting to join up, you know, I was getting email after email and I couldn't do a thing about it. You know what I mean? It was all to do with Paul and the old site and everything like that. But like I say, now Josh has come along and moved all this over. So just again, big thank you to Josh. Do you know what I mean? Please drop him an email. He's on the forums there now. And Josh says, if you have any little niggles with the forum, just mention it on the forums. He'll come along and, and sort it out. So that is the forums back now. The community of Starship Sova is whole once again. And eventually, Larry Santuru has his proper email sorted out on the forums. I will say no more than that, but Larry knows what the hell I'm on about. Hey, Larry, eventually, it's sorted. It's only been a year, Larry. Don't worry about it. One last thing before we get into the actual show itself, just to give you some dates. Now, I know when you're kind of walking around or probably listening in bed, you know what I mean? Dates are not going to mean a thing. But this week's Sofa Notes isn't going to happen. And it's just, like I say, I'm on holiday and there's just a couple of weeks where I can't, I can't seem to get it all together. You know what I mean? It's going to be too hard. And it's probably just best, you know, have a break and, you know, everyone can actually catch up with all the shows that are out there. So there isn't going to be a Sofa Notes this week. There will be a Sofa Notes next week because next week is the Worldcon. And we're actually back home for a few days and it looks like I'll be able to record a show. But there will be, after this week, after this kind of show, show number 95, there will be no oral delights for two weeks. So the next show will come back. So that means there will be no show actually on the 5th of... What day is that? <laughs> Looking at me bloody calendar, yeah. The 5th of August, the 12th of August. The next oral delights will be the 19th of August. So... That's, you know, we're having a little hiatus on Oral Delights. It's just, like I say, we're on holiday. We're away in Bath, camping. Wish we luck. Hopefully the weather's all right. So really, the best way to think about it is, for the next, say, three weeks, there's going to be, like, hitty-missy with shows. There will be one Sofa Nord show coming up, but there will be no more Oral Delights 
until that, that 19th of August. There you go. Give you time, like I say, to catch up and hopefully give me time to sit on my fat lorry arse. <laughs> give you a heads up as well. I downloaded or I got from Audible because we've been talking about on the Sofa Notes show, been talking about, you know, fantasy, you know, and people kind of, you know, it's quite, you know, coming out of the closet and saying, yes, I am a fantasy reader, you know, so... We talked about, I think it was George R. R. Martin one time. So I've downloaded a big mammoth George R. R. Martin's, the first one in that, um, I can't even remember what it's called. That's right, A Game of Thrones. So if you've read, listened, or anything to A Game of Thrones, drop over to the forums and tell us your thoughts there. Don't tell us the ending, no. <laughs> but that is my holiday reading. So I think we'll jump straight into some poetry, and this is by G.U. Clark, and it's narrated by our good friend, Rhea Sizemore. Strange Vegetables by Geo Clark Back in the 60s, an alien from the opposite side of our galaxy briefly infiltrated the day-glow and beaded hippie scene of San Francisco, shared their brown rice and weed and the dead Jimmy Janus airplane messenger service, group-hugging into the zeitgeist, then phoned home light-years long distance with his description of the vibe— permission to linger, and love to all, and now stoically waits for a reply, well into this new millennium, in a back-country commune where he grows strange vegetables, programs guitars, and sleeps in a cocoon of pure reason, everyone around him dancing to a music of spaced-out time below the light of our briefly populated moon, Seti, none the wiser, flying saucers, if fringe industry, tribute bands, all the rage in Las Vegas, reality in meltdown. There you go. Thank you, Gary, and thank you, Rhea. Fantastic narration, fantastic poem. Thank you so much. Next up is Cory Doctorow with his fact article. It is narrated by Paul Kajiji. Corey keeps dropping these fact articles all over the internet, you know what I mean? He's kind enough to let Starship Sofa play them. And they're just so enlightening, do you know what I mean? In this kind of, in this times, you know. So Corey, what are you on about with this cheap facts and plausible premise? I was 15 when I got my hands on a grubby copy of Steal This Book, Abby Hoffman's classic how-to manual for dropping out, living for free, and ripping off the system. It was chock-a-block with fascinating tidbits like how to generate the tone that would get you free long-distance calls, how to organise a cooperative store, how to recycle tyres into sandals, and how to dumpster-dive dinner from your local supermarket. I was hooked. I read that book a dozen times that summer. Steal This Book began my lifelong love affair with secret knowledge, from texts on con artistry like Mora's seminal The Big Con, the basis for the film The Sting, and Lovell's How to Cheat at Everything, a con man reveals the secrets of the esoteric trades of cheating, scams and hustles, to dubious demolition manuals like the Anarchist Cookbook, to the street law that explained how to short out the contacts on the back of a payphone speaker to get an open dial tone, and what magic words will cause a collection agent to stop calling you for fear of prosecution for harassment. At one point, I had quite a collection of this stuff. Anarchy files from BBSs, 
grubby paladin press paperbacks on creating new identities and urban caching techniques, ancient phone switch manuals from the old Belcor Research Outreach Department, and catalogues like Amok and the Whole Earth Catalog, which promise bottomless access to tools and ideas. It's a good thing I only dabbled in conspiracy theories, ufology, and cryptozoology, or I would have gone bankrupt. <laughs> Apart from prurient interest... This stuff is pure gold for science fiction writers. It lets you fake a pretty good spycraft, spin interesting scenarios that hatch in the crevasses of straight society, and provide texture and background on the woo-woo edges of reason and sanity. I also grew up on science fiction novels that were full of this stuff, Competent heroes and lovable rogues who worked the angles, solved the cons, and uncovered the truth that the shadowy forces of conspiracy wished to keep its mortals from discovering. These two literatures, the fiction and the how-tos, fed one another. Because it wasn't enough to read about something being done, I wanted to find out how to do it. Not because I had any interest in blowing stuff up or hacking the phone company, but because it made the story better, and it gave me that frisson that genuinely forbidden knowledge can convey. These facts were a currency in my social circle. We'd trade them like baseball cards. I'd show you my payphone trick, and you'd show me your gag for turning the cellophane on a cigarette pack into a smokering machine. Social capital accrued to everyone who could show or explain something that gave you power and insight into the mysterious workings of the world. Like all currency, these facts were scarce. They were expensive. You needed access to esoteric books, secret BBS file depositories, shady characters who knew knife tricks and could roll joints one-handed. Drug law was a big part of secret knowledge, of course, our own version of the sacred rituals of a secret society. Well, the market for facts had crashed. The web has reduced the marginal cost of discovering a fact to zero dollars and zero cents. And that means that the two literatures, how-to and fiction, have effectively merged into one master story, the plausible premise. New warfare expert John Robb coined the term plausible premise to describe the new reality of open-source insurgencies, insurgency composed of many small groups without any hierarchical leadership or organisational structure that typifies 20th century practice. Open-source insurgencies don't run on detailed instruction manuals that describe tactics and techniques. Rather, they run on a master narrative about how the insurgency may be conducted. As screenwriter John Rogers put it, what you really need is a plausible premise. That is, you can kill US soldiers with IEDs. And then the new interconnected marketplace of shitty evil ideas will solve the problem for anyone looking to kill US soldiers with IEDs. Or more succinctly, in order to get the marketplace off its ass to solve the impossible, you have to just pull off the highly improbable and make sure everybody knows about it. Show it can be done, show how you did it, and watch the marketplace attack because you've made the premise plausible. But this doesn't just work for insurgents. 
It works for anyone working to affect change or take control of her life. Tell someone that her car has a chip-based controller that can be hacked to improve gas mileage, and you give her the keywords to feed into Google to find out how to do this, where to find the equipment to do it, even the firms that specialize in doing it for you. In the age of cheap facts, we now inhabit a world where knowing something is possible is practically the same as knowing how to do it. This means that invention is now a lot more like collage than like discovery. Bruce Sterling's new Imaginary Inventions project is seeking to catalogue the imaginary inventions of fiction, hucksters, failed entrepreneurs, and other imaginers. I sent him some excerpts from my forthcoming novel, Makers, Tor HarperCollins UK, Fall 2009, which concerns hardware hackers whose principal activity is thinking up stuff that would be cool, then Googling to figure out how to build it. And Bruce replied, There's hardly any engineering. Almost all of this is mash-up tinkering. It's like the Burroughs cut-up method applied to objects. These guys are assembling hardware in the same crowd-pleasing spaghetti-at-the-wall approach that Web 2.0 designers use in assembling features and applications. That's exactly right. That's the plausible premise right there, spaghetti-at-the-wall hacking that assembles rather than invents. It's not that every invention has been invented, but we sure have a lot of basic parts just hanging around, waiting to be configured. Pick up a $200 FPGA chip toaster and you can burn your own microchips. Drag and drop some code objects around and you can generate some software to run it. None of this will be as efficient or effective as a bespoke solution, but it's all close enough for rock and roll. Plausible premise invention is everywhere. Look at the incredible games flying out of Seattle's Valve Corporation. Half-Life, Counter-Strike, Portal, Left 4 Dead, all built on the same engine with radically different narratives and play mechanics and atmosphere. A GURPS approach to game design that shrugs off the macho business of creating your own 3D engine from scratch in favour of pulling something down off the shelf and remixing it. What does all this mean for science fiction? Well, it probably means that SF writers are going to get credited with a lot more invention that we're accustomed to. The formerly rare occurrence of technology jumping off the page and into the world, Heinlein's waterbeds, Clark's geosynchronous orbits, are about to become a lot more common. When readers can download or mail order off-the-shelf components and instructions for integrating them, it becomes much simpler to turn fiction into reality, for better or for worse. There you go, I am enlightened. Corey, thank you so much. Paul, thank you so much. Links on to Corey's Crap Hound and links over to Paul at Process Diary. Next up is the main fiction and it's by Ken Scholes. Now, Ken Scholes has came to me, I've actually come to Ken Scholes late, if that's probably the best way to describe it, but I am just kind of Greedy for more with Ken's work. It's fantastic. I mean, great ideas, great story, great plots, everything. 
It was Grant that kind of pushed me towards Ken Scholes. You know, he mentioned this story and I was lucky enough to kind of bag it for Starship Sova. And if you've noticed as well, the fantastic artwork by Ed Bellissimo. Ed, what stunning artwork that is for to go with the story. And I've seen Ed's like workings out, you know, his kind of rough copies and his pictures, what he actually used. If you go over to Ed's blog, there'll be a link on the site. If you go over to Ed's blog, you can kind of see where he's drawn his ideas from. Ed, stunning work. You know what I mean? Don't want to keep like asking for more, but you know, I certainly will. <laughs> so I'll just give you a little heads up with Ken Scholes, who's born in January 1968, science fiction and fantasy writer, living in St. Helens, Oregon. He actually refers to himself as Trailer Boy, a reference to his childhood home. This short story, In the Blank, where life is hurled, won third place in the fourth quarter of the 2005 Writers of the Future contest. His first novel, Lamentation, was published in February 2009. And it's actually based on another short story, and Ken's short story titles, they are gems in themselves. His, this novel, Lamentation, was based on a story called Of Metal Men and Scarlet Thread and Dancing with the Sunrise. Do you know what I mean? Come on, be honest, that's fantastic. And it's actually the first of five in the Palms of Isaac saga. Book two, Canticle, is expected to be released in October 2009. So I'll put a link on to Ken's site. Do pop over there, like I say. I'm thoroughly enjoying the work I've read by Ken Shores, and this guy is going to be top to be one of the kind of the science fiction fantasy writers you know what i mean he's certainly one to look out for excellent work and like i say it is narrated and it's narrated by fred heimbaugh you know like i give like see i give this story to fred you know and i was fred you know if you want to have a read there please by all means it's come back excellent do you know what i mean fred what a great job so the starship sofa and her oral delight is so proud to present into the blank where life is hurled by ken Schulz. A sudden sharp increase in the room's temperature signaled the fallen's arrival, and William scrambled to the floor to prostrate himself. He averted his eyes, hearing the door open, and waited as the sweat trickled down his sides. Soft footfalls passed his desk, and he risked a glance up. The fallen strode through the office, arrogant and nude, the stubs on its back twitching as if with memories of flight. William held his breath as it opened Fisk's door and slipped inside. Then he waited to a count of twenty and returned to his desk. The uncrowded newsroom remained silent, though a hundred questions begged for asking. The fallen? Here? Why? Did you see its eyes? No, never, never the eyes. The temperature dropped a hair, and William went back to the paper he'd been doodling. He'd intended it to be a poem. The words rarely came to him, but when they did, his fingers looked for release, to no avail. In this place, pencil leads broke, words ran together, ink faded, and all lines of literary endeavor bled into a meaningless puddle of bits and blotches. The only stories he wrote now, the only stories he was allowed to write, were the meaningless drivel the Gazette required of him. Long ago, before the war that brought him here, he remembered a blossoming career as a novelist, tales of the fantastic and supernatural. Now words haunted him, 
like unrequited love. For five minutes longer, he fiddled with the paper. The temperature shot up as Fisk's door opened again, and William joined the others on the floor. The fallen rarely traveled to this ring, and to his knowledge, they'd never visited this building before today. This was the second he'd ever encountered. He waited, listening to the footfalls, heard them stop at his desk, and forced his eyes open to confront the bare feet before him. The fallen hissed, then continued on its way. As it left the building, the scattered collection of reporters and support staff released held breath, and the temperature returned to normal. Hodgson, my office, now! William climbed slowly to his feet and let them carry him toward Vernon Fisk's voice. The others looked at him, faces still pale. Be a good chap and close the door, Fisk said from behind his desk, waving half of a cigar at an empty chair. William pulled it shut and sat down. Still taking stabs at your passion, eh? Surprised, William realized that he still held the pencil and scrap of paper tightly in his fist. I'm sorry, sir. No need, no need. Fisk leaned forward. He was a fat man, his face pocked and perpetually slick with sweat. I was a brewer, you know. Brewed great beers, even won an award. Of course, down here come to nothing. I tried for years before giving it up. William nodded. Well, enough of the past. On to the future. He nodded toward the door. You're probably wondering what that was about. Special assignment. From the top. Or from the bottom, if you prefer. He snorted at his own joke. <laughs> Story of the century for us, it is. The Gazette printed little that was news. During his time with the paper, William had interviewed new arrivals, promoted local gossip, and churned out propaganda on demand. Sir? Fisk stubbed out his cigar. Story of the century. Somewhat of a celebrity, I'm told, too. I guess you know him. He was after my time. Who, sir? Why, Harry Houdini, that's who. Just arrived and already at it. William's mind lurched him back to the turn of the century in a different life. A Blackburn stage, an angry mob, an arrogant showman, and the equally arrogant young man William had once been. He could still hear the clinking of the shackles. Smug bastard, William said in a low voice. I'm not surprised. William looked up. Yes, it's said you'd met before. I trust it wasn't a favorable encounter? I was young. He made a challenge. I took him up on it. Went over two hours, he did, but in the end he got out of it. William chuckled. Of course, I didn't see it. Afraid of the mob, I fled the scene and hid out. Well, you got the story. Day insisted. An interview then, sir? Dread crept into him. This was the last person he wanted to sit down with, even for half an hour, in one of Hell's more tolerable rings. Fisk belly laughed. 
More than that, Hodgson. <laughs> it seems Mr. Houdini has announced his run for the year. You are to accompany him, chronicle the journey, and return with the story. Fisk paused. Well, no guarantees on returning. It is the ear, of course. William knew little about the ear. Somewhere on some abandoned edge, it supposedly stood alone. Whispered legends traveled the rumor circuit. Few had seen it. Few had spoken into its cool crystal surface. Some believed Michelangelo had carved it on some great assignment of grace from above, guarded by angels as he worked tirelessly. William believed it was most likely bunk. But, sir, I'm not sure I'm the best, Fisk interrupted. You're not the best, but they want you, and who am I to deny them? William swallowed. He'll take one look at me, and that'll be that, with all due respect. How long it's been since you met him. Time was hard to count here. He did the best math he could. Over twenty years. Fisk grunted. I'll book you a passage on the Titanic. You'll leave it dawn for Hell's Mouth. Two weeks. Enough time for you to grow out that beard of yours, I should think. I don't think he'll know you, Hodgson. William stood. A heaviness fell over him. Two ghosts rattling their chains from his past. Houdini and the sea. It couldn't get much worse. William reslung his sea bag at the tavern door. He'd waited a full five minutes, his brain racing ahead to scout out the possibilities. Would Houdini recognize him? During his two weeks on the black, oily sea, his beard had itched its way to fullness. But would that be enough? And if he were recognized, what did it really matter? The night he had bound the swaggering showman was long buried in the past, but William had not forgotten. He doubted Houdini had either. Opening the door, he pushed his way inside. The tavern was crowded with a scattering of damned souls that drank in small groups, talking in low voices. Houdini was not hard to spot. All new arrivals carried an otherworldly quality, and Houdini transcended even that. He seemed the only unbroken man in the room, sitting alone at a table in the back corner. He looked up, his face an inverted triangle beneath tangled hair. He'd aged from the young stagehound he'd once been, but his eyes still held their brightness. He smiled as William approached. "'You're the reporter, then?' Houdini extended his hand. The grip was strong, and William returned it. "'Yes, Bill Hopewell, Greytown Gazette.' "'Englishman?' William nodded and sat. Houdini waved to the bartender, a misshapen one-eyed dwarf in a stained apron. The dwarf dried off his hands with a towel and moved sluggishly toward them. I spent a great deal of time in England, Houdini said. Great country, great people. Thank you, Mr. Houdini. The bartender reached their table, his one eye soaking in his newest customer. What'll it be, Gov? 
William nodded toward Houdini's empty glass. The same. Houdini chuckled. Water, then, Boothby. He leaned in towards William as the dwarf moved away. And call me Eric, William. Houdini was a stage name, and there's no stage here. They sat in silence, the low voices from other tables providing a static buzz. The dwarf returned with two glasses of slightly brown water, and Houdini laid a small carved stick on the table. Most use coins here, but some few elite carried the badge of a fallen patron. Curiosity and dread danced slowly behind William's eyes. A patron for Houdini. The dwarf nodded. On the house, of course. Good man, Houdini said. He put the stick in his pocket. These come in handy. William pulled a travel-stained notebook and pencil from his jacket pocket and placed them before him on the table. He sipped the tepid water, grimacing as the slight taste of sulfur hit his tongue. May I ask you some questions, Mr. Houdini? Houdini looked up. Please, and again, call me Eric. William forced a weak smile. Very well, Eric. He paused. This was always the uncomfortable bit, the question he never wanted to ask. To him it implied rudeness and a lack of compassion. Still, he had to ask. The inquiring minds clamor to know. What brings you to hell? Houdini barked a short laugh. Direct, aren't you, Bill? He folded his hands, and his eyes shone in the dimly lit tavern. A burst appendix and an inflated ego. William scribbled this down. How about you, Bill? The question caught him off guard. No one asked, at least not in polite company. He felt an embarrassed flush rise to his face, like an unexpected houseguest, six o'clock of a Sunday morning. He cleared his voice, eyes focused on the paper before him. The war, artillery shell, I think. The great war? There are no great wars. Suddenly his ears were full with the crash of rifles and the screams of dying men. His nose was filled with the stink of blood and smoke. He ventured a glance at Houdini. Sympathy etched the older man's features. Sorry, Bill. You're absolutely correct. Houdini grinned a weak grin. If it helps at all, we won, you know. I don't. It doesn't. He paused, took another drink. You were a showman before. It was a statement, not a question. Of sorts, a magician, an escape artist, a debunker of phonies. But that's not important anymore. And you intend to run for the ear. Yes, you and I, Bill. The light came alive in Houdini's eyes. His face shone. Know anything about the ear? Michelangelo, assignment of grace. Those who speak into it speak to, well, speak to, it's bunk, rubbish. 
Houdini nodded slowly. Perhaps, but it is out there, waiting at the edge of hell itself, and I intend to say my bit into it. William forgot his note-taking and looked up. Why in hell would you do such a thing? Have you any idea what lives in those wastelands? Have you? Houdini interrupted him with a wave of his hand. I make a promise, Bill. I will keep that promise. You, we, may never reach it. And if we do, it may be for nothing. And regardless, we may never return to tell anyone. He felt fear now and agitation, hungry hands grabbing at him. It doesn't matter if I return. Houdini's eyes hardened. It only matters that I go. He raised his glass to his mouth and gulped. He stood, somehow towering larger than life, despite his lack of height. There will be much time for questions on the way. We leave at dawn. Deliberate in his step, Houdini strode from the room, and William sat for a long time after he left. It took nearly a week to reach the wasteland's edge. The film crew waited for them there, a scattering of tents, two large trucks, and a bullet-riddled biplane. Over the days and nights of walking, William had found an unexpected depth in his traveling companion, along with answers to the questions. At night in this tent, he scribbled his notes by candlelight, shaping a story that came so close to fiction that his spelling faltered and his pencils broke. Still he pressed on, filling half of his notebook. Surprisingly, he'd found similarities between them, and that identification led to the beginnings of admiration. He himself had been the son of an Anglican priest. Houdini was the son of a rabbi. Both had committed themselves to a life of physical exercise. Both had written strange tales of fancy. At first it had unsettled him, recalling that night long ago, and the contempt they'd had for one another. But with time, that bled away. Now they stood on a rise, the film crew camped immediately below, and the wasteland stretching out toward a line of unbroken-toothed mountains. William raised a questioning eyebrow at Houdini's smile. "'What's this about, Eric?' Houdini chuckled. I arranged it with his lordship. It was really more of a suggestion, but the old bugger jumped on it. Did you know that in all of hell there are but three aeroplanes? William was not surprised. He hadn't seen one since the war. I thought it would do nicely to capture the moment for posterity's sake. A man in khaki saw them, barked orders, and waved. He walked quickly up the hill toward them, out of breath, as he arrived. Ah, he said, there you are. He ignored William, shoving his hand into Houdini's and pumping it furiously. Albert Maxwell III. Erich Weiss and William Hopewell of the Gazette. The director glanced at William briefly, then shifted his attention back to the star. No need for modesty. You are Harry Houdini. Houdini shrugged. Are you ready? 
Yes, we've all the necessary precautions. We'll follow behind in the trucks, out of the way, of course. We'll use the plane to hop ahead, shoot the scenes, and back to camp before nightfall. Precautions? William knew a little about the wastelands. The nights there belong to the shriekers and the howlers. The days belong to the abandoned. I'll show you. Maxwell's turned and started down the hill. Shouldering their packs, the two travelers followed. A mixed crew awaited. Several Hindis, a few Arabs, and a scattering of Irish-looking scrawny men. Maxwell was American. The men looked up as they approached, then went back to their work. They are disassembling a vast array of vacuum tubes and unhooking wires from a gas generator. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chuck grabbed William as his memories played out the past. An electric pentacle, he realized. Something his imagination had cooked up for stories he'd written long ago. Where did you get this? Maxwell shrugged. It was provided, along with these. He uncovered a tarp on one of the trucks, then pried open a long wooden crate. It contained a dozen Enfield rifles. He opened another box and dug out a handful of shells. Blessed by some damned priest in Greytown, he lowered his voice. Doesn't mean much, but it should be enough to stop a howler. He saw the look that must have been on William's face. Houdini saw it, too. Not for us, Bill. Part of the contract, I'm afraid. He offered a reassuring, sympathetic smile. We'll be fine without them. Trust me. They spent the remainder of the day in camp, Houdini and Maxwell, off to the side, excitedly discussing logistics and filming techniques. They pitched their one-man tents on the edge of the wasteland, struggling to sleep as the night desert came alive with unbearable noise. 
In the morning, after a brief session in front of the camera, they set out alone. True to his word, Maxwell and the cameraman flew ahead in the two-seater, landing, shooting film, leaving, returning, and departing again as the sky grayed toward night. William lost track of how many trips were made, and gradually lost track of how many days had passed in this dead, shattered place. Somewhere behind, the caravan crawled slowly along. Some nights he could see it glowing miles back. Twilights, as they stopped to make camp, Houdini always drew away, mouth working silently as he etched signs and symbols into the hard-packed ground. William avoided asking where he'd learned the protective ward-making. The first night he'd lain awake, terrified as the screaming pummeled his ears and shook the tent. But the wards held each night, and the days had passed without incident or encounter. Eventually the mountains loomed above them, casting long shadows that overtook them as they trudged along. They could just make out the small speck of a gated cave where they encountered their first abandoned, only they didn't know it at first. A speck became a figure, became a child, sitting alone with its head in its hands. The little boy looked up as they approached. His eyes were red from crying. He wore a tattered overcoat and knickers. Papa? Houdini took a step forward. William caught his arm. Careful, Eric. He shot William an angry glance. It's a child, Bill. Houdini moved closer and knelt before the boy. William felt danger but didn't know what to do with it. It can't be. No child could survive out here alone. He swallowed, tasting the dust. It's bait, or worse. Houdini ignored him and stretched out a hand to the boy. What's your name? What are you doing here? The child's lip trembled. I'm lost. William saw something, a darkly intelligent light, behind the child's eyes. My name is Mayor Weiss. William saw Houdini flinch and then tense. Mayor? The child began to change. Its mouth stretched and elongated, jagged teeth filling a gaping hole. The eyes became black, and it lunged forward with a deep growl. It tackled Houdini, its claws grappling for hold. William couldn't move. He willed himself to act, but his rebellious legs held fast. Houdini rolled in the sand, yelling, pushing, and kicking at the creature. Even in the burning wasteland, he felt the temperature shift upwards. There was a dark flash, and suddenly Eric lay still and alone. The creature had flown thirty feet to land heavily in the sand. Another flash, and it began to shriek. Flash after flash, the abandon was torn apart and strewn onto the desert floor. Fascinated, William forgot to prostrate himself. When it had finished, the fallen glared at them, hissed disgust, and vanished. William went to Houdini and offered him a hand up. Are you okay? Houdini nodded, shaken, staring at the pieces of meat. I wondered. The words drifted off. He brushed off his clothes. 
I thought it had been too easy. William watched him without a word. A knot of dread grew in his stomach. They're protecting us, Houdini muttered, as if they want us to succeed. Yes, William thought, and he knew that no good could come of it. The carved words above the gate were Latin. Broken dreams, eh? Houdini said, smiling. It's not far now, Bill, not far at all. He pointed to the dark opening, just beyond the caves. He turned and smiled to the camera, giving a thumbs-up sign. Maxwell nodded excitedly. We'll see you on the other side, boys. He'd briefed them that morning. The caravan would stop here, and they would make several trips flying gear over the mountains to set up a small camp. There would even be champagne. Houdini handed Bill an electric torch. He clicked it on, and its tongue of light probed the cave. The hair on his neck stood up. With a firm clap on the back, his companion brushed past and went into the cave. William followed. The difference in temperature was uncanny. Outside, the desert baked. Inside, coolness prevailed. The cavern stretched deep into the mountain, straight and wide enough for three to go abreast. They walked side by side, Houdini whistling a circus tune as they went. Behind them, the iris of light gradually closed as they made their way. No broken dreams as yet, Houdini said. William shrugged. He thought back to the relative ease of the wasteland crossing and the fallen's intervention. Maybe they've come ahead of us. Maybe, Houdini paused. Did you hear that? William stopped as well and leaned forward. No. An hour later, the straight, broad cavern spilled into a massive room. Easily two dozen openings marked the opposite wall. Houdini rubbed his chin. I thought it was too easy. A drowsy fog settled onto William. Then Houdini's eyes went wide. Papa? He moved toward one of the openings. William caught his arm. Eric! Panic laced Houdini's voice. Surely you heard that! He shook his head. He'd heard nothing. At first. Then he heard the crying from another opening at the far end of the room. He turned towards it, the voice familiar. He opened and closed his mouth, then turned back to where Houdini had stood. Houdini was already disappearing into the opening, following a voice that William could not hear. Oh, William, why? The distant voice said between sobs. He turned away from his companion. Mother, he broke into a trot. Oh, William. He ran blindly, the light bouncing over the narrowing walls as he followed the twisting and turning passageway. After what felt like hours, he stumbled into a small chamber. 
His mother knelt in the center, hands folded imploringly, clutching a crumpled letter. Oh, my boy, my precious boy. Mother! He stopped and crouched beside her, reaching for her. I'm here. Somewhere in the back of his mind, a nagging tickle tried to tell him that this could not be his mother. But he could see her, hear her voice, smell the lavender soap from her skin. She looked up at him. You can't be here. You're dead. As he reached for her, she pulled away. Mother, I'm here. She thrust the letter under his nose. No, dead. It's all right here. You couldn't leave well enough alone, could you? <laughs> she sneered and then spat at him, the warm, dry phlegm splattering his cheek. Frustration tightened his throat in preparation for tears. No, mother, I'm... Another voice further away called to him, and something outside of himself forced him to his feet. My lord, the voice said, why have you forsaken me? Father? He's dead too, the old woman spat. Dead and in hell. God damn him. As he raced from the chamber, she cackled wordlessly after him. He found his father in another room, trying to drink dust from a hollow in the floor. Son, is that you? Father, what are you doing here? The old man looked up. His clergy collar hung open at the neck of his ripped black shirt. You could have saved me. William moved closer, but another voice caught him. The frustration became despair, and the despair vented itself in his cry. No! The voice was that of his wife. Then another joined it. And another. Until it seemed that a multitude surrounded him. The voices coalesced into a litany of his misdeeds and good intentions gone wrong. Every dream or hope another had attached to him, every disappointed expectation. He fell onto his side and clutched his head. One more voice joined the choir, a voice like nails on slate. Enough! He sucked in hot air and fought to control his breathing. He could not force his eyes open. The voice spoke again. You are the one called Hodgson. The heat became unbearable. A rough hand grabbed at his arm and tore it away from his face. You will speak. William finally looked. The fallen stood over him, glaring down, its black eyes burning into him. Yes, he whispered. I am Hodgson. The creature nodded. Your time is nearly come. 
On the third day, you will bind the one called Houdini. Is the meaning of this clear? William sat up, cowering. Memories of that stage long ago leaped back to him. The fallen anticipated his question. This binding will hold. This is what hell has chosen for him. He swallowed. He wanted to say no, wanted to strike back, to cry out to some god for deliverance, to bring down this demon. He swallowed again, trembling with fear. The fallen dropped a small black box. It landed with a thud, and the creature turned its back. When you have bound him, this will be yours. William took the box and fumbled it open. The pen inside was blindingly beautiful, even in the dim cave. It shone with a sharp clarity like nothing he'd ever seen in this place, and he knew in a moment that it was not of this place. He stroked it, feeling its power, and knew that with this pen his curse would be lifted. With this pen, hell could become heaven for him. Close the box! I cannot bear the blasphemy it contains. He closed it, and the fallen turned, scooping it up. Is the meaning of this clear? William licked his lips and nodded. He closed his eyes. When he opened them again, he sat alone, and the caves were silent but for Houdini's sobs somewhere far ahead. They saw the camp first, three tents pitched near the biplane. Two figures worked at connecting the electric pentacle. Twilight was not far off. William had, had found Houdini and dragged him from the caves two days before. Neither man spoke of what they had encountered, but Houdini showed it in his eyes. They had been bright and dauntless before. Now loss swam in them from time to time. Silence settled between the two more frequently as they neared the end of their journey. Now with the camp in sight, Houdini grinned. They stopped catching their breath. There it is, Bill. By God, there it is, he pointed. The desert became scrub and then transformed into a patch of bright green. Centered in the lawn, a large object sparkled and threw back light. The horizon stood close here at the edge of the ring. Behind them, the mountains crawled upward. Ahead of them, the wasteland evaporated into a sheet of blank gray, just past the ear. This, William knew, was the edge of hell itself. He couldn't share Houdini's joy. Tomorrow would be the third day, and since the caves, he'd realized exactly why their journey had been so easy. They entered the camp, and the small crew applauded as the camera rolled on. Maxwell broke out a case of champagne, and they drank it warm from the bottles.
Houdini raised his bottle in the direction of the lawn and its large crystalline ear. The light had already gone, but they'd seen it, massive and shining, set into the ground, and leaning slightly so that one could climb into it and whisper homeward. "'Tomorrow, at first light!' he said loudly. "'Always the showman,' William thought. Somehow it made him feel better about what he must do. He slept fitfully, awakening again and again in the tent. At dawn he climbed into his clothes to meet Houdini and the camera crew outside. The filming commenced without a word, and Houdini turned toward the grassy plain. The ear, perhaps thirty feet in diameter, caught pink light and winked at them from the center of the plain. It's beautiful, William thought. He believed the stories now. The sight of it easily persuaded him. Houdini started toward the grass, then stopped. A large stake had been driven into the desert floor. Near it, the fallen stood grinning. Houdini took a step back, and in a flash, the fallen had gripped his arms, holding him tightly. Mind him, Hudson! Its voice was a hiss. Houdini struggled, then recognized the name. Hodgson? He twisted, his face going red with fury and effort. His eyes locked on Williams and went cold. You! Someone shoved chains into his hands, and the fallen dragged Houdini to the stake. William began binding him just as he had done on that Blackburn stage so many years before. Houdini spat and bit, writhing and kicking. I should have known! Hodgson, you bastard! William said nothing and did his best to avoid the showman's eyes. The accusations they shouted were louder than Houdini's words. In ten minutes, the strong man was bound, facing the grass and the ear. Maxwell grinned. The crew laughed and pointed. The camera rolled on. Houdini howled. The fallen dropped the box at William's feet. He picked it up, turned his back on them all, and returned to the tent. He wrote all day and into the night, nearly oblivious to Houdini's cries. Gradually, the cursing had become pleading. At one point, William could have sworn he'd invoked the faith of both their fathers, but then the pen grabbed him and dragged him back into his passion. The stories and poems unfolded like magic onto the page, flowing out in ways they never had during his life. He wrote until the cramping of his hand forced him to stop, and then he'd read what he had written. The stories and poems weaved a tapestry that blended into one monumental message that hell could not contain. And William's heart could not contain it either. He broke into tears and threw the pen away from him. He grabbed up the strewn papers from his notebook in fistfuls and shredded them. He stood, grabbing up the pen, and strode into the early morning. 
He could feel determination and rage hardening his face and stiffening his limbs as he walked toward the ear. Houdini hung limply by his chains. He raised his head weakly. It's okay, Bill. William ignored him. The fallen stood nearby. Clutching the pen, William approached. I've changed my mind, William said. It hissed. Take that obscenity from my sight, it said, waving the pen away, eyes squinting to avoid the golden glare of the light from its surface. Without a word, William sprung forward, bringing the pen up and plunging it into the fallen's white chest. It shrieked as the silver of heaven slid into its skin, and black filth plumed out like a swarm of gnats. The fallen clutched at it, and William kept his grip as he came down on top of the demon. Behind him, Houdini's voice took on new life. The grass, Bill, by God in heaven, the grass! William's body translated the words before his mind could, hands firmly on the pen, driving it deeper, arms locked around the fallen. He scrambled with his feet to drag the creature onto the lawn. It screamed and bucked against him, then melted into dust. William lay still, panting, feeling the cool of the grass enfold him. He sat up. Maxwell and his crew stood in silence. Standing, he picked up the golden pen. I could use that, Houdini said with a tired grin. He took it to him and crouched beside him while the escape artist did his trick. He watched as Eric took the pen apart by touch, stripping it down to its basic parts, before selecting the piece best suited for picking the locks that held him. The film crew continued shooting. When Houdini finished, he stood rubbing his wrists. He winked at William. I'm glad you figured it out, Bill. William nodded, the tapestry within the stories and poems he'd written. It was never about the ear. No. Maxwell stepped forward. His face looked pale. Before he could speak, Houdini pounced and spun him into a human shield. The rifles? he asked. At last they approached the ear. Now armed, William and Eric cautiously watched the lone cameraman that followed. They had tied the others up. It's too big a news not to film it, Houdini had said, giving in to Maxwell's pleas despite William's misgivings. The ear stood before them now, and Houdini leaned his rifle against its base. Then he leaped into the air 
and caught the rim, pulling himself up and onto the crystalline lobe. He climbed a bit, then looked down. I think this is it, he said. His voice carried perfectly. William put his attention back on the cameraman, while Houdini spoke slowly above him. The message I want to send back to my wife is... Houdini paused, then spoke clearly and firmly. Rosabelle, answer, tell, pray, answer, look, tell, answer, answer. Tell. He climbed down. The tears ran freely down his face. You're sure you have nothing to say? William nodded. I'm sure. They left the cameraman untied and climbed into the waiting plane. Now for my last escape! Houdini released the brake and sent them bouncing toward the expanse of gray ahead. William heard Maxwell shouting for the single man standing to keep shooting, and then the voice was lost in the roar of the engine. They lifted into the air and were swallowed by nothingness. They flew in silence, flew on for hours long after the fuel became vapor. A random line of verse from his past floated to the surface of William's mind. Into the blank where life is hurled. He didn't realize he'd said it aloud until Houdini asked. Something I wrote long ago, he shouted. Now the engine coughed and sputtered. Now the plane shuddered and bucked in the wind. Now the gray around them took on tinges of blue. Now a green cliff soared ahead of them, and two waiting figures waved. A rabbi and a priest, he knew, watching their prodigal sons come home. Houdini laughed. William laughed with him. There you go. I hope you will agree. A fine story. It's just excellent. You know what I mean? Great ideas, great storyline, plots, characters. You know, the full package when you get Ken Shull's story. And what a narration. Fred Heimbaugh, what the hell have you been taking to come out with that? Monster? Fantastic. I actually emailed Fred after I listened to that the first time. And I was just saying, Fred, that kind of monster, devil guy, you pulled out a demon, pulled out a, don't know where you pulled like, <laughs> just sitting in his bedroom or sitting in a little study doing it. You know what I mean? Dad, what? <laughs> just imagine. Dad? Are you Dad, you all right? <laughs> well in the character, Fred. That's the... Oh, fantastic. This story's just made by D. You know, knowing the kind of Fred's pulled off this great narration. 
So like I say, there will be links to Fred's site and links to Ken's site. And I've got one more story by Ken, which actually came from the tour.com site as well, which is just another you know amazing story. And fingers crossed, you know, you might give us some more as well if I kind of drop in emails. Please, Ken. Next up, new titles. First one up is by Orbit Little Hardback called Wireless, the Central Collection by Charlie Stross. Price start, $14.99. you got Missile Gap in there, Rogue Farm, Colder War, Maxidus, Down on the Farm, Underwire, Snowball's Chance, actually that Underwire was um, with Cory Doctor as well, Trunk and Disorderly, so there you go. It comes in round about 352 pages, so and each one of the stories got a little afterword in as well. Praise for Charlie Stross, and it, you know what I mean, it's like some praise here. Vernor Vinci says, Charles Stross is the most spectacular science fiction writer of recent years. William Gibson, as keenly observant of our emerging society as it is of our emerging technologies. One extremely smart species of fun, William Gibson. Paul McCarley. Paul McCauley says, dark, funny and crackling with high bandwidth ideas. Gardner Does Was says, where Charles Stross goes today, the rest of science fiction will follow tomorrow. The Guardian says, like being trapped in the middle of an exploding ideas factory without a helmet. Great one, that one. Charlie Stross Wireless, like I say, a price start, $14.99, little hardback book there. The essential Charles Stross collection. Next up is Mark Chadbourne with The Destroyer of Worlds. What a great title that is. This is book three of The Kingdom of the Serpent. The Times says, A sumptuous feast of fairy tale magic, dark gothic horror and romance. In the far lands, the brothers and sisters of the dragons gather for the final battle. The one the ancient Norse legends called Rananork, which will lead to the passing of the gods and men from the universe. The champion of life, Jack Churchill, has gathered a mighty army, backed by the gods from the world's greatest mythologies, Celtic, Greek, Chinese and more. But will even that be enough? For at the massive fortress of the enemy, the dark force that has opposed the brothers and sisters of the dragons across the centuries is about to manifest. Its warriors number in the millions and they are ready to march. The only hope is a two-pronged assault. While Jack leads a small group of allies on a raid of the enemy fortress, others must venture in the land of the dead to reclaim the mysterious extinction she has, which may be the key to the victory. Yet the seeds of defeat have may already been planted among the heroes themselves. Driven to the brink by betrayal, sacrifice and death, his allies fear Jack may instead bring about the very devastation he is trying to prevent. SFX says, Chadbourne's work is the answer to prayers of all those who have been mourning about the by-the-numbers fantasy. That's a nice little blurb, that one. SFSite.com says, Reminiscent of Alan Garner, the highest compliment I can pay to someone working in this mythic mode. It is priced at $12.99 by Galance. Trade paperback. It comes in round about 330 pages. So the Destroyer of Worlds, Mark Chadbourne. Great cover on the front. It's like a few shades of blues, different kinds of blues, and it's like a Chinese print dragon being stuck on the front there. And like I say, Destroyer of Worlds. What a great title for a book that is. Next up is Neil Asher, and if everyone's been listening to Oral Delight, you'll know I've just played a Neil Asher story. This is actually, I've got an uncorrected um, proof copy of this book. It doesn't come out till September, but I just want to kind of give you a little kind of blurb on it as well. You want to get a heads up, a Spatterjay novel, Orobus. 
SFX says, Asher is brilliant at conveying the vastness of deep space, the strangeness of alien life forms, and the sweep of planetary horizon, not to mention the vast sweep of the novel itself. BBC Focus says, Asher, the Lewis Carroll of space opera. John Courtney Grimwood says, What has six arms, a large beak, looks like a pyramid, and has more eyes than you'd expect, and talks nonsense. If you don't know the answer to that, then 1. You should. And two, you haven't been reading Neil Asher. See, point one, John Corney Grimwood. That's that's a lovely little kind of plug, that, for the book. So the Neil Asher story is, in charge of an old cargo ship, the old captain, Aerobus, flees a violent past, but he doesn't know the lethal war drone sniper is a stowaway and that the past is rapidly catching up with him. His old enemy, Prada Vrel, mutated by the Spatagia virus into something powerful and dangerous, has seized control of Prada Dreadnought. Their courses converge in the graveyard, the border realm lying between the polity and the Prada kingdom, a place filled with ruins left by past genocides and interplanetary war. Meanwhile, the terrifying Prada king is coming, prepared to do anything to ensure Vrel's death and keep certain deadly secrets buried. And somewhere out there, something that has been annihilating civilizations is stirring from a slumber of five million years. The Cold War is heating up fast. Death Race says of Neil Asher, We love you, Neil. You and your futuristic, hard men, wired monsters and chilling, pragmatic AI. So look out for that one. I'll give you a little blurb when it comes back up. You know, I'll give the heads up when, it, when it's out. But it's out in September. The next one up is... Another collection of stories called Oceanic by Greg Egan. Now, if you remember, Greg Egan <laughs> didn't let us play one of his stories that was up for the British Science Fiction Award. And it's actually, it's in this book as well, which was Crystal Knights. But, you know, don't let that put you off this book. This has got some great stories in there. Lost Continent, like say Crystal Knights, Steve Fever, Induction, Singleton, Oracle, Border Guards. Got that ride in the crocodile, glory, hot rock, and the that Hugo Award win one day, Oceanic. And this is a nice chunky book. It comes in at 490 pages by Galance again, like I say, a trade paperback. Oceanic, collected together for the first time, are 12 stories by the incomparable Greg Egan, one of the most exciting writers of science fiction work in the day. In these glimpses of the future, Egan continues to explore the essence of what it is to be human and the nature of what and who we are in stories that range from parables of contemporary human conflict and ambition to far future tales of our mortal descendants. Return to the universe of the meta-civilization known as the Alagam, which Egan explored in his critically acclaimed novel Incandescence. Riding a Crocodile, which recounts an epic endeavour a million years from now to bridge the divide between the Alagam and the reclusive Aloof. Glory, set in the same future in which two archaeologists strive to decipher the artefacts of an ancient civilization, And Hot Rock, where an obscure sunless world conceals mind-spinning technological marvels, bitter factual struggles and a many-layered secret history. This superb collection also includes the title story the Hugo Award-winning Oceanic, a boy inducted into a religion that becomes the centre of his life, but as an adult he must face evidence that casts a new light on his faith. Oceanic, travelling to the worlds of the future in the hands of a master craftsman. One of the most ambitious, startling, dexterous writers of science fiction field can boast of, a mature, distinctive voice arising from the monstrous publishing wilderness. That was... 
Asimov science fiction magazine. New scientist says the universe may be stranger than we can imagine, but it's going to be have a tough time outdoing Egan. Like I say, this one's a glance again, 1299 Oceanic, the collected stories of Greg Egan. That is new titles. So there you go. Oral Delights, number 95, put to bed. I think great show. You know what I mean? I don't like to kind of praise myself too much, but, you know, great poem, you know, Geo Clark. Excellent artwork, you know what I mean? And like I say, Cory Doctorow is so enlightening with his fact articles, and then bang, with that main, you know, main fiction. Excellent. I mean, the only thing that's left is down is the, the new titles. I don't know who that guy was stuttering on. So there you go. That is the Oral Delights for two weeks. We are on hiatus. Listen, do consider, you know what I mean? I don't know, can I get Yes, I haven't got a ball or anything. But, you know, we are now fully fledged on our own. If you want to support it, you know, £2.50 a month. That's it. You know what I mean? That's the best way to support Starship Sober. Again, this month, you know, Audible's pulled out of sponsoring. With, but I've got like a kind of little bedrock that keeps it going with the monthly donations. You know what I mean? And that's just so helpful. It can means I can just kind of ride out the waves and not worry about that side of things. If you want to do that, you know, pop up the front of the website. Just, there you go. It's all there for you. So that is, like I say, Oral Delights show number 95. I will see you in two to three weeks' time. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.